1: I'm Nicholas Gordon, host of the Asian Review of Books podcast, done in collaboration with the New Books Network. In this podcast, we interview fiction and nonfiction authors working in, around, and about the Asia-Pacific region. Many Western entrepreneurs and businesses have foundered trying to set up shop in China. Different expectations, different ways of doing business, different institutions and platforms all come together to remove any pretensions that one can easily transplant a foreign business model into the Chinese market. One of these entrepreneurs was Xavier Naville, who moved to China in 97, where he built Creative Food. Unlike many others, his venture was a success. It's now a key supplier to major restaurant chains across the country, including McDonald's, KFC, and Starbucks. The Lettuce Diaries, How a Frenchman Found Gold, Growing Vegetables in China, tells Xavier's story, Growing Creative Foods, Managing a Chinese Team as a Foreign Manager, Trying to Work with Farmers to Improve How They Get Agriculture, and Navigating Investor Demands. Today, Xavier and I will talk about his time in China, where he talked about starting a business and whether things are different in a more developed, more advanced China. So, Xavier, thank you so much for joining me today. Perhaps let's start at the beginning.
2: What brought you to China in the first place? Well, it's great to be here, Nicholas. Thank you for inviting me. Um, How did I come to China? I came in 97, um, age 27. I was a finance uh, uh, officer in a multinational in paris and, and i came to china to become the finance director of the subsidiary and um, I, um, I i thought i was there for just a couple of years and i ended up spending two decades uh, in china i uh, two years in into it i started creative food and and built the company to what it is today but i essentially came to china as an expatriate
1: right and and what's kind of the the period of time we're we're talking about here so what 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 are some of the major events that happen while you're in china
2: So I came to china in ninety seven and sold the business in two thousand eight to um to a a London-listed company that was doing all the fresh food for Marx Spencer and Tesco and left the business in 2012. Uh, I would say that to answer your question precisely, the the major event that affects the food sector in China in that decade from 2000 to 2010 is the melamine scandal uh, in 2008. That, That represents a major shift in the way Chinese authorities have been looking at the uh, the food sector and food safety in general. Um, up to two thousand eight, there was a major focus on protecting the interests of the peasant farmers in China. Um, uh, after the melamine scandal, uh, the authorities very quickly realized that this fragmentation on the supply side was not sustainable, and they moved to shut down thousands of small dairy operators um, in China and. Um, and make it more efficient to produce safe dairy product in China. So the shift in 2008 is from protecting the peasant farmers to protecting the consumers of China.
1: And not to kind of jump ahead in my in my questions a bit, but I think you note in your book that the, the melamine scandal um, is one where uh, The food safety problem at least appears to become a very real one for China and for Chinese consumers. It's no longer a thing that, say, international businesses care about, but everyone kind of looks, you know, cuts corners, doesn't pay attention. But it became a Chinese problem for a major Chinese company for Chinese consumers. I think that's how you characterize that scandal in in, in your book
2: yeah, I, I in the book, I talk about the earlier scandals um, in the trade tensions with japan when when Japanese authorities found chemical residues on frozen spinach coming from China. I also talk about the uh, the tensions with um, EU inspectors on uh, shrimps uh, exported to China. And there was a tendency um, on on the on the China side to lump all this complaint complaints in um, either in denial or um, in they don't understand China a um, uh, phrase that they, they, they often use Melamine was an issue in China um, affecting Chinese consumers and uh, related to Chinese uh, farmers and, and middlemen because the middlemen were the one who added the toxic, Chemical into the product, not the farmers, um, so that uh, that was a, a huge um, awareness that um, that took place at that time, and that that completely shifted um, the um, the way the Chinese government was thinking uh, about food safety. Today, if you want to do anything in dairy in China, uh, you need to put down two hundred million dollars on the table. You cannot do a put trapping operation like it was the case. Before two thousand eight, and that's the way China assures that um, people who invest in dairy are doing the right thing at scale, and that they can be controlled.
1: So, I'd like to take a step back and talk about your experience building uh, creative foods. Um, you know, obviously, it, it, it starts as a as a spin-off from your from Asia Foods. Uh, and it seems like you're constantly kind of trying to build a company, all the stresses of building a company, trying to find a business model that works, dealing with investors, uh, and then of course you add the add the difficulty of um, being a foreigner in China, trying to manage a almost entirely Chinese team and building this new venture. Um, I wonder if you might—it's a big question, I know—but could you kind of share some of what you experienced building building this new company?
2: Well, I think I um, my experience uh, changed over time. Um, I came in very inexperienced, um, and one of the reasons I wrote the book is I wanted to to, to tell the story of a business success um, uh, in a way that was very genuine and authentic, in a way that was not linear because it's not linear. There's ups and downs. Um, So I I came in with this idea that I had to be the omniscient leader. Um, I was was trying to make all the decisions, and two years into it, I nearly drove the company on the brink of uh, bankruptcy. Um, That's where I shifted a bit the way I was operating by simply acknowledging that I did not know better in China than um, the Chinese people who were surrounding me, and that despite their inexperience in the field that we were operating in, I had to listen to them uh, much more, and that's uh, I guess that's the that's the one fundamental shift that happened in my mind. I came with the idea that what worked elsewhere would work in China, and that I would be the evangelist that would bring this uh, this knowledge to China, and um, and I shifted by saying. China is different. It's a different operating environment. What worked elsewhere is not going to work in China. I need to listen and little by little adjust. And that's where I built a different business model, a different culture, and um, and creating a team of people that 15 years later is still running and leading this company.
1: So maybe let's kind of maybe go through some of those changes bit by bit. Um, Let's start with let's say internal, let's talk about kind of management culture, working, trying to manage uh, local employees, dealing with their expectations, dealing with how they understood their role within a business. Um, what kind of, so for lack of a better word, what kind of pretensions did you come in when you started Creative Foods? And then how did those expectations get kind to of change or that understanding change over time as you as you built the business?
2: Well, you know, I came in as a young leader. I read a number of business books and, and I was trying to talk in, inspiring quotes. And when I made presentation to the team, I would, first I would do it in English because my Chinese was not good enough. And and I would use quotes from whoever, you know, John F. Kennedy and Roosevelt and, and Churchill. And, and I, I quickly realized that just nobody could respond to that. Um, I, I talk in the book about the sudden realization that my accountant, um, my simple accountant, um, uh, associated accountant at the time was, was commuting two hours in and two hours out every day that she had to supervise her kids' homework for three hours every night. And that she was also living with her parents-in-law and, uh, and that when I was asking her to be resourceful and, um, and self-driven all these buzzwords she just did not respond she could not even understand what i meant uh, what she wanted is a supportive boss who gave her um, a safe space where she could do her job so she needed much more guidance than i could provide to her um, at the time so how did i change this is i uh, when i let go of most of the foreigners in the business because i could not afford them anymore um, i started to um, learn a bit more. And instead of trying to know it all, um, I tried to learn it all from the people who were surrounding me. And I, I, you know, I led from a vulnerable point of view, asking questions saying, you know, I don't know that, uh, or I don't know how you do that in China. Why don't you tell me how you would do it? And because my Chinese was not very good. I uh, People got into the habit of um, not rambling and very quickly prepare prepare their their conversations with me and and quickly make recommendations. Um, And the good point is that I was able to very quickly decide on that. So I guess the the, the important shift in my mind is the realization that I could not lead a Chinese organization like you lead um, a Western organization. Um, A lot of my employees were very motivated, but they lacked skills, basic management skills. Um, a lot of them um, had other pressures, um, the the long commute, um, the the pressure, uh, 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 the family pressure, and I had to take that into account. What I realized um, early on is that many of my employees came from far away. Uh, They they were not from Shanghai. They they were migrants from uh, inside the country. And for them the company was much more than just a place to work. It was also a place to socialize. They did not have much of a social network outside of the company. And um, and I, I needed to create that space where they felt safe and secure and where they could express themselves. Um, uh, and, and if I did that, then I would benefit from their talent and uh, insight. A Chinese friend of mine told me one day, Chinese people can be very shy and reserved, but um, given the right environment, their creativity will blossom. And he said, you just need to look at the way Chinese uh, behave in a karaoke to understand what it means.
1: And I I want to kind of maybe drill a bit deeper into this conversation about you know, working styles, management styles, etc. You know, because some of the things you said right now are things that you also see in Western businesses, maybe not to the same degree, but, you know, issues with employees maybe not um, really engaging with their boss because, you know, they're the, like, because they don't want to engage with the boss, they have the same shyness, long commutes. Um, But also, as you know, there are real differences, as you noticed. As you said, it's true that you can't run a Chinese company like you run a Western one. Um, I guess, do you see these as kind of are these just problems of degree that maybe China is just not at the same stage where the West is? Or is it maybe different conditions on the ground are leading to these differences in outcome? Okay, can I, how, how do you kind of understand where these differences come from?
2: Um, I, I mean, you, you're making a good point in, in the sense that is it something that is typically Chinese or is it something that is a, a bit broader that may maybe connects to a new generation of managers who want bosses who are involving them more in the decision, who are less directive um, and who who are more authentic or can express themselves in a more vulnerable way. Uh, And it's very true. Uh, But there is certain characteristics that are specific to China. And there's a couple of them that are crossing my mind. One, this issue that people come from far away and the company is much more than a place to work. It's, it's a place to socialize. Um, and, and the second is that um, you, you, you don't... The mistake that most leaders do is they lead everyone the same way. And I quickly realized in China that many of my employees, they were very motivated, but they were not highly skilled. And I needed to lead in a different way. I could not simply adopt the American model of... Giving you a project and telling you to go to F, uh, people barely understood how to go to B. So I had to manage to to manage a bit tighter than um, I would have done in the West. But this idea that um, uh, employees and managers um, in the West also want a boss who is more authentic um, is is very true. And and you can't escape it because the environment in the West is also increasingly fast changing. And as a, as a leader, you just can't know it all. You have to learn it all and you need your team to do that. Of course,
1: not, not only are you having to kind of um, develop and train up a, a Chinese management staff, uh, you have the added complication of having to work with Chinese farmers who are engaging a lot of very traditional farming practices. Um, kind of, could you talk a bit more about how you and your team some of, some of those struggles in trying to work with actual farmers on the ground in getting them to adopt different farming techniques, different applications of you know agricultural technology. What what are some of the struggles that you faced with in that, that that you dealt with in that space?
2: Yeah, that's a good that's a good point because I've got I've learned to to um, to respect the Chinese farmers uh, tremendously. So just as a as as a context before I make some comments is one has to understand that the Chinese farmers have been whiplashed left and right uh, for the past four or five decades. Um, they've been through, you know, when China opened up, uh, when China um, uh, was liberated in 1949, they, they for a very brief moment, they got ownership of their land, which they had never had for centuries, um, most of them. And, um, and, and then suddenly, they moved to a communal farming uh, system for 15 years and that didn't work. And it's only in the early 80s that they started to operate their own plot of land with this land use right uh, system that Deng Xiaoping um, implemented in the early 80s. So as a result of that, Chinese farmers don't trust anyone. You can promise them everything. I went to the farms. I promised them that we would replicate California in China, that we would ship to Japan, that everybody would make a lot of money. And they looked at me and they shook their head. Um, I bought a high quality a fertilizer and pesticide to make sure that uh, they did not buy anything that was tainted. I gave it to them. And the first thing they did is sell it on the market um, and pocket the difference and buy the cheap stuff. Uh, so were, were they dishonest? I don't see it this way. Um, I just think that they didn't trust anyone. What, what I saw happening is that over the years, they saw that I was still there, that I was still buying from them and that I was never the best price, but I always bought from them uh, at a reasonable price. And you know what? For, their, for them, that was the most important thing because they had a steady business. Many of them ended up investing um, and getting government support to expand their operations. And I built a network of decent-sized farmers across China who knew that they could earn a profit working with a foreign company like me. Um, so uh, the I don't know if I'm answering your question like this, but I, I, I find that they've been, despite their initial prejudice um, and despite my... Rollicking uh, stories in the book. Um, they have built uh, a deep relationship with the farmers that I was uh, working with. We were working indirectly with close to thirty thousand farmers, and um, so that was a lot of people. And um, and we uh, we have helped them uh, consistently improve their income, and I'm proud of that.
1: And and that's a that's a really good segue to my to my next question. You know, it, it, in kind of reading your book, I'm reminded of of arguments that you know, call situations kind of like like the China you're dealing with at the time as a you know quote unquote low trust society. Um, there's not a lot of trust in um, institutions, not, not 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 a lot of trust in contracts and in in the law um, because they just aren't you know they just haven't been developed yet. Uh, and so people trust in each other, they trust in their families, they trust in their communities, they trust in people that in some ways they can kind of see in front of them. And you kind of with people we have a long standing personal relationship with and that kind of that's where the the trust comes through. Um, and I guess you've already kind of hinted at this, but do you feel like that was matched in your experiences building a business in China that, as you note, farmers were like, this guy's coming, he's saying he's he's talking up a big game, but like everyone else, he'll be gone and Six months or less. Um, did you kind of see? I, mean, I guess does this idea of China at the time as a lotion society? Does that kind of match your experiences actually on the ground?
2: That's true, and, and and the lack of trust can be explained, as I said, by the historical context and Chinese socialize in a different way. They they refer to their history in a different way. They have an entirely different pantheon of gods and legends and heroes uh, compared to the one we have. The, the biggest mistake I see people do again and again when they come to China is trying to seek that level of trust that they would seek with another foreign businessman. And and usually it's tainted by the fact that we look at personal relationship in China um, through the lens of uh, our own moral framework and, and We're essentially anchored in a Judeo-Christian framework. Uh, And in China, I say it's not about trust, it's about aligned interest. So you want to, I don't know if it's low trust. What I know is that most of these people have been through ups and downs, and it's really hard for them to trust anyone. Um, But what I know is that when you can um, honestly, humbly uh, study the, uh, the other party and understand what their interests are, and build a model where these interests are aligned, where we both have a cost if we breach that relationship, then you will build a relationship that over the year, the years will turn into trust. Uh, but the trust is not assumed, as you say.
1: So we kind of talked about this at the very beginning of the conversation, but I'd like to kind of return to the issues of, of food safety. Um, this is obviously something that, that you at Creative Food struggled a lot with, um, you know, uh, how to kind of match the expectations of of consumers, expectations of of your suppliers, um, who had very very high expectations for food quality, with the actual reality on the ground. You know, all these different small farmers, um, and I wonder if you might kind of give talk a little bit about what you saw at the time. I know you say things are are different now, but kind of at the time. What were some of the ways you tried to manage kind of the the issues of food safety, food quality?
2: Yes, I'm happy to talk about that. And I can also talk about how it's changing. Um, So so at the time, and and today it's relatively similar, uh, the average size of the farming operation in China is less than two acres. Um, uh, So that would be um, uh, uh, less than one hectare. So the... um, as soon as you're buying large quantities of uh, foods, whether it's produce or meat or anything like that, it's likely coming from hundreds and hundreds of small operations. And it's enough for one farmer to do the wrong thing. And, and suddenly you've got a food safety scandal uh, at your door. Um, I, I remember shipping some uh, organic ginger to the UK for our new owner, and um, and we we found the best producer, and we he had all the right certifications, and we when the containers arrived in the UK, one of them had some chemical residue residue in it. So, um, the um, at the time we we called the, the the producer, and he he had a system to trace back exactly to which plot of land. Um, that, that ginger uh, was connected to. And when we talked to the farmer, the farmer said, you know, I I, I could not make my order, so I just went and bought uh, a couple of boxes from a nearby grower. And, and that's at the root of the food safety issues in China because you've got so many farmers that it's really hard to control that one of them is not going to go sideways. And it doesn't mean they're evil, it doesn't mean that they... They, they cannot be trusted, but it means that they do things differently, and you know they may not understand the implications of what they're doing. For them, it's it's okay, um, and for 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 you, it may not be okay. Now, how how is this changing? It's changing actually very fast. And um, uh, t- today, with the um, uh, new digital platforms, uh, consumers are able to buy directly from farmers. They're bypassing all the middlemen, and that's something I skipped on. Um, most of the food that is consumed in China changes hand three or four times before they get to the consumers. And um, the farmers may not be the main culprit. In the melamine scandal with Sanlu, the people who added toxic chemical, they were middlemen because they, they have no vested interest in the quality of the food. They just want to move it fast at the right price. So uh, today... With the digital platforms, what's happening is that consumers are able to buy directly from the farmers and uh, to establish that relationship that used to exist at the village level, but that has disappeared with the modernization of Chinese agriculture, where where farmers are are shipping to a random consumers across the country. Today, they get automatic feedback from their consumers. And I tell a story in the book of that young farmer in Sichuan who stream video streams his growing practice to um uh, to consumers and get immediate feedback and he says it's incredibly rewarding for me to get positive feedback but also to get negative feedback about what i can improve and what i can change and that, that's something uniquely chinese in the way um, agriculture is modernizing because in the u.s the agriculture supply chains are extremely consolidated and integrated so today you've got a in a a sort of digital village that is forming in China with uh, 900 million consumers in the cities buying from 500 million farmers and all the data is transparently available for everybody to watch.
1: So I'd like to pivot now to maybe some more uh, forward-looking questions. Um, so first of all, uh, you know, given your experience in kind of building a business in in China, um, obviously many entrepreneurs, many other businesses have tried this and failed. Um, I guess, given your experience, kind of what are some of the general mistakes that entrepreneurs and businesses make as they try to enter the China market?
2: Yeah, uh, we... we... Touched on, on this a bit, Nicholas, um, and that, that's a very important question because the it, I, I talked about how many businesses come to China and try to build that relationship of trust. Uh, New Zealanders will come to, um, to a, a banquet in Shandong, will have a, a nice meal with the officials uh, and with their potential partner, and, and then they will be disappointed that people are not behaving as they expected them to do. And and the mistake they make is they're seeking that level of trust that they know in their own society. You can't do that. You have to focus on mutual interest and align the interest. The um, uh, correlated to that type of mistake is the idea that what worked elsewhere in Malaysia, in Thailand, in another Asian market is going to work in China. And there's this sometimes arrogance or call it, parochial behavior on the part of Western businesses that come to China and believe that they can uh, replicate what worked elsewhere. Um, China is big, China is complex, and China deserves its own business model. And despite paying lip service to it, I see a lot of people I work with who still have this mindset deeply ingrained that what we've done in the U.S., can work in China. It may work in some ways and you may not have to overhaul your your entire uh, model, but it will have to be adjusted for China. And you need to come with an open mind and a, and a humble mindset about that.
1: Um, but obviously, you know, I think China, China is changing. It's getting a lot richer. It's getting a lot more developed. Um, so let's kind of maybe drill down on uh, Chinese consumers and how they're changing especially when it comes to food um, are they are they quote-unquote modernizing and again There's there's really big quotes around that word modernizing are they are they are they modernizing in the same way that Western consumers did Do they care about health the same way? Um, you make an interesting uh, Point in your book that I really want to bring out which is um, the idea that Chinese consumers and China in general that they'll follow kind of the traditional Western path and um, may actually be less likely than China and Chinese consumers becoming global trendsetters. Um, and I wonder if you might uh, get into a bit more detail about your thoughts about where Chinese consumers are going.
2: Yeah, um, uh, thank you for asking the question because it's 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 a very important subject. The Chinese consumer don't trust anyone. They don't trust the brands. They don't trust the advertising. They don't trust the, the claim from the government certificates. The only people they trust are consumers like them. And um, uh, research shows that Chinese consumers do an average of eight checks on any brand they start to buy uh, compared to one or two checks um, for consumers in the West. So they'll, they'll go to, they'll find this dairy brand that they find attractive. The first thing they'll do is they'll go online and find a website to make sure that this brand is not completely packaged just for China. But that it has an existing business back in New Zealand, Australia, or Germany. That it's a real brand that serves real consumers in other countries. Um, then they'll go on uh, on the company website to download the annual report. They'll they'll and then they'll join chat rooms to talk with other consumers like them and um, seek their insight about their experience. So they're an incredibly sophisticated consumer. And increasingly so, because there's more and more data and information available online. Um, and when they, I, I would not say that they're modernizing. When they change, because they have more vivid, more income, they have newer needs, they want to be more healthy, um, like many consumers in the world, they're changing in a uniquely Chinese way. Um, I was surprised myself when I did the reporting for the book, following a couple of moms that I knew from my kid's school, that in average, for example, a Chinese family will eat way more vegetables than um, than an average Western families. Uh, we were counting that they were eating 10 to 15 different varieties of vegetable per month, and that it was rotating with the season, so time four. Uh, I probably eat seven or eight varieties uh, of vegetable, not much more than that. And Um, they want that variety. It's part of their culture. And that's why 80% 80 to 90% of Chinese consumers are still buying the vegetable from the local wet market because they can find that relationship with the seller and that diversity of product that they can't find in a supermarket because for a supermarket, what they want is large volume, less varieties. Um, And this digitization of supply chain that I talked about earlier is actually combining uh, an industrial way of bringing that food to them with the variety that they want uh, because there, you've got 500 million farmers who are now able to sell that vintage black hair pig from the hills of Zhejiang to the consumer in uh, Shanghai. He, he would never have had a chance to sell to a retailer in China because he would be too small to do that but it could sell to uh, to consumer directly. So that's that's one element. They are um, sophisticated, they're savvy. Um, they want a, a large variety of choices in their food and they can now increasingly find it with uh, new new digital platforms. And the last thing I, I would make is that they want to eat more healthy like many consumers in the world, but they're doing it by resorting to the the principles of Chinese medicine. One of the moms I was interviewing in the book was explaining how she drinks um, red tea during the winter uh, because it's 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 bringing heat, and she switches to green tea in spring and summer because it's detoxifying and it brings cold um, to to her um, inner balance. Um, So I, I was surprised myself to hear that because I I, uh, I did not realize that the principles of, of such a traditional belief um, could pass on to this type of very modern consumer. Uh, but it is there. It is there, and it, it is a, um, affecting many of their choices when they purchase brands. So w- when U.S. businessmen come to me here in San Francisco and tell me I've got this amazing cereal bar and I want to sell it to China because it's a big market... I'm saying you gotta do a bit more homework
1: so I think I've, I, I I have one more question it's another it's another big one um, so China' is obviously not the same economy that it was when you first built creative foods it's richer it's more advanced it's more developed there's more technology um, as you note I think Chinese consumers um, are are leading the world in some things in a way that I think people outside of China probably haven't glommed onto things like digital payment things like e-commerce that kind of thing. Um, and do you think that someone Western or Chinese would be able to build the same business in the way that you did in this more developed environment?
2: So that's, that's a good question because I actually specifically went back and called a number of foreign entrepreneurs in China to ask them that exact question uh, a month ago. And, um, and, and the answer is, could a Frenchman who doesn't speak a word of Chinese um, be able to build a business I built in China today? Probably not, because at the time I was the only one who even thought of doing this. Today you've got um, a range of professional suppliers who are competing with Creative Food, who are um, who are able to to do uh, the same quality. What Creative Food did well and what I did well is grow extremely fast, build scale, and um, be able to offset my maybe higher cost with economies of scale uh, that my competitors could not uh, do. So the answer is probably no, not because Chinese don't welcome foreign investors, just because China is becoming more competitive and your competitors are becoming technologically savvy. Um, You've got now probably we're in the second generation of managers in China who've been trained in professional multinationals for 10, 15, 20 years. And uh, your competitors can hire these people to compete with you uh, to serve people like KFC and McDonald's. So that doesn't mean that you cannot be an entrepreneur in China. You just have to be uh, much more careful about what makes you stand apart. Um, I was interviewing this... Um, I'll take an example of a small business and a bigger business. I was interviewing that uh, entrepreneur who has a chain of... Uh, New York style pizzas in uh, Shanghai in Beijing. And he was saying what I did extremely well is recreate that New York atmosphere in the restaurant that none of my Chinese competitor can replicate because I'm from New York. I know what it means and I know how it feels. And that's why people come to my restaurant. Um, he he also did a very good job at building that, um, uh, th- that very safe culture with all his employees Um mm-hmm and uh, retaining them uh, over time. Uh, The other example from a bigger company is, I don't know if you heard of that um, app called Evernote that allows you to take notes um, online. Evernote's business in China started in 2014. Within two years, they had 30 million uh, users. I think today they're at 60 or 70 million users. And they've been extremely successful. And the way they've done that is um, by completely localizing their app the needs of the Chinese consumer. So it's a separate subsidiary, it's a separate name even, and it's probably going to get listed before the end of this year uh, in Hong Kong um, under its own uh, structure. And what they've done is they've reduced some of the features that were successful in the US because it did not appeal to Chinese consumers. They've created new features that work better for Chinese consumers or even for Chinese characters, And, um, and they've been very good at doing this. So they came in with a open mind and did not try to replicate their success elsewhere in China. They just adjusted. And when I say you adjust in China, doesn't mean you change your product, but you may change your process. Um, for example, one of the things I've done with some of my clients is help them insert into their process um, a constant uh, assessment of what the local government agency in their um, functional area of the business want it. As you know, in China, every local agency, whether it's the Food and Drug Administration or the Ministry of Industry and Commerce, has a set of objective, strategic objective and priorities. And as a business operating in China, you need to understand that so that you can align your interest with their interest and deliver on what they want. Um, If you do that, you'll get a lot of support.
1: So I think that's a great place to end our interview with uh, Xavier Neville, author, author of The Lettuce Diaries, How a Frenchman Found Gold Growing Vegetables in China. Uh, Xavier, I do have one more question for you, which is, uh, I guess, what's next for you and where can people find uh, the work that you do?
2: Uh, thank you, Nicolas, for giving me a chance. I've got two activities. I, I do strategic advisory work for large companies, uh, multinationals in China. Um, it's called Vision Management Consultants, And um, uh, and I've got a separate activity that does coaching work where I help uh, my clients on the execution end of the strategy. And um, I like to work with uh, a bit smaller business to uh, help the leadership team um, put together a strategy and then execute it and scale up and, and do things a bit more intentionally than I did it when... I built my own business. Um, so hopefully, whatever I learned, I can pass it on to a younger companies. So I've got a website called xavier nevillecom and uh, people can book an appointment with me and have a conversation with me. I've got a small assessment that helps us go beyond the polite conversation and quickly assess whether there's something I can do to help them.
1: So, you can follow me, Nicholas Gordon, on Twitter at Nick R.I. Gordon. That's N I C K R I G O R D O N. You can go to AsianReviewOfBooks.com to find other reviews, essays, interviews, and excerpts. Follow on Facebook or on Twitter at Book reviews Asia. That's reviews plural. And you can find countless other author interviews at the New Books Network at NewBooksNetwork.com. The Asian Review of Books podcast is on all your favorite podcast apps Apple Podcasts, Spotify, mm-hmm. and Stitcher. Rate us, recommend us, share us with your friends. If you want to continue to support us interviewing those writing in, around, and about Asia. Next week, join us for an interview with Professor Melissa McCauley, author of Distant Shores, Colonial Encounters on China's Maritime Frontier. But before that, thank you so much,
2: Xavier, for joining me today. Thank you very much for having me, Nicholas.